This week's Nerdist Writers panel is sponsored by Future States, produced by ITVS and available online for free at futurestates.tv. Future States is a -a one-of-a-kind web series told through an immersive website that was designed by interactive studio Murmur, featuring eight sci-fi films that occur in one futuristic story world. Future States TV is a unique meditation on the impact of technology on education, employment, healthcare, incarceration, and more. This season's stories come from indie filmmakers Greg Pak, who did the great Planet Hulk and Batman Superman arcs, Alex Rivera, who's behind Sleep Dealer, Nisha Ganatra, who made Chutney Popcorn, and more. The creators and producers of Future States are huge fans of the Nerdist Writers Panel and are honored to sponsor this week's podcast. Oh, that's flattering, guys. Visit futurestates.tv to check it out. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's podcast was recorded at ATX Television Festival Season 3. Were you there? You should have been. It was a fantastic time, as it always is, Uh, although in this third season, it was even bigger and better than it's been before. Uh, It was just unbelievably fun, uh, and I urge all of you to come on out. They already have the 2015 dates booked, June 4th through 7th. Be there. I will be, for sure. They can't keep me away. Uh, there were all there was all kinds of amazing programming, and we're going to give you a taste of what they had to offer over the next few months, um, including panels that had Noah Hawley from Fargo, Carlton Cuse, uh, the folks behind Justified, and lots more. So I hope you guys enjoy all of these panels from ATX Television Festival. Go to atxfestival.com for more information about next year's fest. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Today's podcast is an interview with Noah Hawley, who created the unbelievably great Fargo for FX, based on the Coen Brothers movie. The finale is tonight. I am so excited to watch it. I'm freaking out. Um, Noah was kind enough to sit down with me at this year's ATX Festival and chat about that show, about shows he'd done before, including My Generation and The Unusuals, and uh, his start on Bones and as a novelist. Uh, It was a really fun chat, and Noah's a great guy. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy that. Following it directly uh, is the Q&A from the Fargo screening, which they did at ATX Festival. Uh, They screened Episode 9, so the penultimate episode, which was a big one. And uh, there was a Q&A moderated by Alan Sepinwall afterwards. And um, he will introduce everybody on the panel, but it has Noah, producer Warren Littlefield, and uh, two amazing actors from the show, the star, Alison Tolman, uh, who's a phenomenon. Uh, you know, she is uh, just so impressive on this show. And the great Keith Carradine, who plays her dad on the show, who is just an unbelievable actor, and both were so kind and lovely. I got to meet them at ATX Fest. So come to ATX next year, June 4th through 7th, 2015. You won't regret it. Was that your first TV stuff, was on Bones? Uh, You know, I'd written uh, three pilots before Mm -hmm. then. Written and sold pilots. Yeah, I did... um, I had two, one for CBS and two for FX, which is a weird split, but uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was back in the days of the blind deal, and I remember, you know, because I started as a novelist, and then um, 
Uh, I did some feature work. I had a book that had been optioned, and I sold an original script and a pitch, and this was all in like a six-month period. It was I was living up in San Francisco, and then my motto is, what else can I get away with? So, you know, uh, so I started looking at TV, and, and um, uh, you know, it's like I, I came down from San Francisco, and I, I met with... Um, Jersey Films, which was John Langraff at the time, mm-hmm. um, and I met with oh, Galen Hurd's company, and, you know, it was basically very general, like, do you watch TV, what kind of shows do you watch, and then I walked out and I got the call from my agent, like, well, they both want to do blind deals with you, and I was like, for what? I didn't, you know, I didn't <laughs> yeah, say did you anything. Did pitch them anything? What were the, no, what I, I think the Galen Hurd one, we talked about a book, it was okay. a, um, but, uh, you know, it's that weird dynamic of, of the TV dynamic which is which is you know you can climb the ladder but that but since TV's about writing in someone else's voice you know at a certain point if you climb far enough without developing they think all the good ideas come from outside mm-hmm. so there was that sense that as a novelist and as a feature writer I had all the good ideas and so um, so I did um, I did a CBS pilot and I did an FX pilot that year which was Landgraf basically was hired to run FX right as we were p- oh, selling wow. the pilot around. So he's like, "Why don't I buy that from you?" Um, and great. and then uh, and then that one didn't go, but I sold him another one. And I thought, uh, if any of these ever go, I should know how to produce a show, right? Because you know you're going to have a show, and you want to be the in charge of your own destiny. Absolutely. So uh, I came down and I interviewed on a bunch of shows um, for staffing season. What was it that year? It was Threshold was one of them. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, there was uh, um, the Frank Spotnitz one, Kolchak, the Night Stalker, I interviewed on, and uh, and Bones. And, you know, meeting Hart, he said, look, you're going to learn to produce the show. Yeah. He's so great about yeah. training writers. Yeah. Time. And Threshold, they were like, well, you know, it was Goyer, and he's like, you're going to be in the writer's room for six months. And, you, you know, it's like, okay, well, I think I know how to do the writing. It's the producing. So. That's a great attitude. Yeah. 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 Um, Thank so, you. But, so tell me about these early development things. So you're, you get two pilots sold, which is yeah. pretty cool, but it's this development experience has to be all new for you. Yeah, it was interesting because it was, I mean, you know, I'd done the feature development stuff. Yeah. TV, you know, the, what's to like about TV, of course, is that it's a machine and it needs to be fed and, that, and, and it, it does... You know, every year it does the same thing over and over and faster and faster and and all that. So, um, so you know, the fact that that this you know the thing got CBS got set up and 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 then Landgraf. I mean, obviously, it's a very different development experience. Those two, those two networks. But um, we've uh, heard, I've heard, I've talked to like Graham Yost and a couple of people who have done uh, a bunch of FX. Yeah. How is his development process? I mean, they, everyone speaks so highly of Landgraf. How is his development process different from like a typical network, which CBS certainly is? Well, I think the thing with with John and with FX is that they're interested. Even though they're very attracted to genre as a you know as a way in, you know, it's a western, it's a this, it's a that. There is um, a real concentration on theme and on what the show says about the larger world. You know, so look at a show like Americans, which is like, great, it's a spy show, but it's also a show about what it means to be an American and how that changes you and influences you and the family and, you know, all those all those issues, I think. 
um, you know, the, there's an attraction to the sort of Shakespearean, you know. Uh, and uh, well, there's that tapestry. Like I feel like Fargo's doing that same thing. Justified's doing that. Americans is doing that. It's it's not just about this guy, right? Even just about this. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think it's a more macro view yeah. of storytelling. And um, you know, honestly, it's there's it's a very you know I mean I for Fargo, which I'm sure we'll get to. You know, I, I turned in a 115 page outline for nine episodes, and. Uh, and they called and said, you know, well, we're going to schedule a three-hour meeting. And, you know, after network TV, I was like, oh, they hate it, you know. <laughs> but the reality was it was 115 pages. They wanted to give me my due. And and literally, you know, I sat, sat across from John, and he spoke off, off the cuff. He clearly read it multiple times. We spoke for three hours at great lengths about character and theme and structure and all those, all those things, um, you know, with other executives around us. Um, but, you know, I think it's about really wanting to push the medium, you know, the boundaries of the medium, which is different than how do we get 14-year-old boys to watch our television show. And the crazy thing is FX has more 14-year-old boys than any other network, even though they're not... Well, they're, they have that demo, that 18 to, to, to 35 male demo locked. So... But it's not because they're catering to them. I mean, there has to be something to just putting on good television. I think so. I think so. You know, when I wrote the script for Fargo, uh, I didn't put any act breaks in it. It's just a 68-page movie script, basically. And then nobody said anything. And then when I got into a room with four writers to break the remaining nine episodes, we didn't break with act breaks. We didn't break story with act breaks, which changes completely the way that you tell the story because you're just worried about what happens next. But I really wasn't worried in this show that I was going to be at a loss for when to go to commercial. You know, especially if you don't believe that the reason people turn the channel is because the last thing they saw wasn't the craziest, like, we found another body or or he's sleeping with his mom kind of thing. Uh, Why why didn't you write in the typical TV format for the pilot? Uh... It just, you know, it's it was about the flow of it, I guess. You know, it's always when you read those those scripts, the act break, it just interrupts the the experience of it, and and uh, um, and I think part of it was understanding that, you know, I'm trying to walk in the shoes of these iconic filmmakers, and and to make a ten hour movie, and and uh, so it's a movie script, basically. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, did you have to look at it episodically, though? Oh, you do, it yeah. Isn't a 10-hour. Right. But the first, you know, the first script, I mean, in a way, if you'd it it, it worked as a standalone as well, you know, it kind of had to unlike a lot of things, it wasn't it moved the story. It set up the series, but it also told a complete story in a way, you know. Um, so, you know, it's really I found it to be a really fascinating process. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and and in this 114 page outline, yeah. which was for 15, the entire, 115 page. Yeah. I didn't mean, just short you a page. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> that's that, all the good that page happened. almost killed me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in this outline, which was for all 10 episodes, right? Like it told the right. complete story. Yeah. Um, so you've had this roadmap going in. Uh huh. 
First of all, how did that ten episode story start to form for you? Was it clear from the beginning? What was it like finding your way in that story? Well, there was a pitch. I mean, to go back to the very beginning, <laughs> the conversation was. We want to do up to Fargo as a series. We're wondering, can you do it without March? By which, of course, they mean any characters from the movie. By which they mean, can you write us a Coen Brothers movie? <laughs> which, you know, we're not usually asked to do. Um, and uh, um, so, for me, it was about going back to, the, well, what, it, what made that movie that movie? It's, it's not a whodunit, right? You know from the beginning. It's, it's a, quote, true crime story that's not true, which allows you to tell the story in a very different structural way. You know, Mar- Mar- that's something I was curious about, too. What, is, like, what does that mean to you from a storytelling point of view? Uh, it means, I mean, the perfect example, and when I went in to pitch FX, I said, you know, the biggest question we have to a- answer is what's our Mike Yanagita, right? Mike Yanagita being the guy from high school who calls her out of the blue and says, oh Margie, you know, it's you know, been so long and then she has lunch with him and he says, tells her this crazy story about he married the high school girl and she got leukemia and she died and he's just so lonely, right? And then later she talks to her friend and her friend says, oh he made all that up, like she has a restraining order again, like, and you're like, why is this in the movie? It has nothing to do with anything. Except if you think that the only reason it would be in the movie is because it happened. I mean, it's one of those crazy real-life details that they put in because, well, that's how it happened, you know? So it sort of reinforces the authenticity of the story. Yeah, that's true. The stranger it is, too. Right, right. So so for us, it was like, what are those details? And, you know, a lot of it is about, you know... I mean, a good example is, you know, in in episode four, when, when Gus arrests Malvo and he calls... Molly and says, you know, you should come here. I got him. And Molly, you know, goes to her boss and her boss says, no, I'm going. And it's like, in a scripted thing, the hero would be where the action is, right? In six, we have a bit, it's a huge episode and Gus and Molly are basically just driving around having coffee and, you know what I mean? Like, they're not where the action is. So that there was a lot of, in trying to make it feel true in adjusting the, the, the storytelling. And a lot of that came from, you know, at the end of the movie, when Bill Macy is arrested in the motel room, you know, it's another jurisdiction, so Marge isn't there, you know, which is not how it would work. And, you know, your hero has to be there to catch your villain. But, but uh, so that's... And once you t- take away that um, Joseph Campbell journey bullshit, you know, that, that our friend Don... Dan Harmon always talks about, you know, once you take that away, like, then you're doing something people can't predict as well, because yeah, it's true. like, it's not satisfying those things, but it has to be satisfying, you know, right. so... So how do you, and this must be conversations you've had with your staff, yeah. how do you keep the story satisfying without doing the tropes of a satisfying, a quote-unquote satisfying story? Uh, you know, it has to, it has to be... You know, you got to give people what they want, which is it's a good versus good versus evil, and good is going to win or evil's going to win. But you know, you can't shy away from that. But also, you look at No Country. I mean, Josh Brolin says, "I'm going to make you my special project," and then he ends up randomly dead in a motel room, and it throws the whole movie out of whack. People go crazy; they hate it because it's like they're expecting this mano a mano thing. Thank you, and and it's not there for them. And um, but that doesn't make the movie unsatisfying, right? Like Absolutely. it just 
it challenges you to, to, you know, the minute that you do something that people didn't predict, since we're all so smart, right? People put their iPad down and they lean forward, you know, they go, I can't, I don't know where this is going, you know, um, and we did that jump, that time jump, you know, in the middle of yeah, that was episode eight. <laughs> well, this must have been a conversation that you guys had, like... <laughs> Can we get away with this? It <laughs> Should was. we do this? But I, what I liked was we did it just in the middle of the episode, you know? Absolutely. And also so late in in it that, that, you know, and I did, you know, I saw that people were really like, it totally reset the table and people were like, now I really don't know what's going to happen, you know? Because, again, you're building toward this anticipation, you know, okay, she's... She's the obstacles have gone up. Lester seems to have gotten away with it. Like, well, what's her move going to be? And her move is going to be she didn't have a move, and a, you know, a year went by. So, um, I want to talk just just to go back a little bit about um, approaching this material. And you know, for me, what something I love about the show, and I had this a similar conversation with uh, Graham about Justified. Right. Is like, I feel like they're doing Elmore Leonard better than Elmore Leonard. Right, right. And I feel like you guys are doing the Coens better than the Coens, which I know you don't want to hear. But <laughs> oh yeah, well they don't want to hear it. They certainly. And I don't. You know, I don't know that that's true. I mean, it's it's interesting because it, it does. It has to be them, but of course it also has to be me. Yeah, so it's that balance that I'm curious. So about. in some ways, you know, I may be more of a populist than they are. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> I may be giving you what you want more than they give you what they, <laughs> they want, so you like me better because do you know what I mean? Like, right? Because I'm You're delivering. Not as <laughs> also, in a concentrated way. I mean, this the ten-hour movie versus the two-hour movie. You know, you go see Lewin Davis, and you and then you go home, and you go, what did that? What did that mean? You know, and you have, you have to think about it, and then you have to rewatch it again. But if if Lewin Davis was a 10 hour journey each week you'd be thinking okay well how does this play into what's going to happen next week it's yeah. just more of a relationship that you forge with the show yeah but there has to be some discussion or at least some thought about you know pretty much what you're talking about like what is real what makes it real versus what are the audience expectations and then layered on top of that you have yeah. what what would the Coens do or how do I make this a co you know I feel like you're using the trope well there were yeah there were those explained. moments and I mean you know, I told FX very early in the in the prep prep and casting process because they said to me a few times, you know, this isn't a comedy, and I said, I think you're using the wrong words. Like, first of all, you can't make a Coen Brothers movie by committee, right? You just can't. You can't do it. They're so idiosyncratic. You can't. And the example I gave, I said, look, what if I got Javier Bardem to be in the show, and you guys are high fiving in the halls, and everything's great, and then I gave him that haircut. Right, I gave him the haircut, and people would lose their minds. Do you know what I mean? Like, but Joel and Ethan gave him that haircut, and they laughed at him for thirty minutes. But there's nothing funny about it in the movie. It's just an unsettling other quality that he has. So you know, a lot of it was there's a just a litmus test of you know a know it when you see it dynamic that ultimately has to be I know it when I see it you know what I mean like it just does and and there were a lot of you know and part of working with with any network and studio for the first time is you have to you have to train them you know what I mean you do you have to say here's how I work here's my process you know I start I have a composer that I've used on my other shows. I start talking with him at the outline stage. And by the time I'm on location, before the first frame is shot, he had sent me ten pieces. He'd sent me the score 
for the first episode. Who who's the composer? Jeff Russo. Yeah, yeah. and it's a great um, score. Yeah, he's really great. Cool. He really he really nailed it, and a lot of that was just com- you know because we had a lot of conversations about it. We d- talked really specifically about it, and and so I was able to be listening to the score while we were location scouting and you know and I was able to call him and go oh yeah I really like this piece but I think when you know Marge finds Lester in the basement let's do it slowed down and maybe an octave lower like make it more it's a comic cue but if we do that it'll be more menacing and and then I was able to 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 score the the producer's cut with the actual score of the show and Jeff had taken it upon himself to you know to record it with an orchestra in Prague, right? He flew to Prague. <laughs> yeah. So I, I turned over a producer's cut that had a live orchestra, a 40-piece orchestra, you know, and it's like, that's part of it also is it's, you know, a, most of what we do is sales, right? It's like you have to sell the show and, and, and write the script that's going to get it picked up and then make the pilot that's going to get the series picked up. And then even when you're in production on the series, you're still selling, you know, you're still going. Every phone call, every notes call is like, things are great, we're really excited. You know, there's that dynamic to it, which, um, you know, you, you have to understand that, that there is a... You see it in your head, you know, but um, you're dealing with, with, you know, I mean, creative, it's not to say that the executives aren't creative, but for creative people, it's easier to say, okay, there's going to be this orchestra and the squirrels, you know, but, but what they see is what they see. And even, you know, my ABC days, like, you know, with the show My Generation, which was a fake documentary, right? So it was very modular, like we, I, you know, but, but, and you would think that they would watch it like a human being, like they'd sit down and they'd watch and they'd react to it and then maybe they'd look at the continuity and go, oh, I see, he moved these scenes around. They watch with the, the, the continuity and they go, oh, these two scenes are in different. And, and you would have a notes call on a 42-minute cut that was 90 minutes. And you're like, guys, I have stuff to do. <laughs> you know, like, literally, right. this is the this least is productive job. part of my yeah job. So, <laughs> you know, and the great thing on this is, um, you know, on the script level, FX was very... Um, they got it, and they felt like I got it. And the minute that I told them that I was going to write all ten of them, they just relaxed. And I said, look, I'm going to hire... Four writers for ten weeks. We'll we'll turn in an outline, a hundred and fifteen page outline um, of the remaining nine episodes. Because I knew it's harder to pull things apart when you get the whole story. Um, and then I'm going to go off and I'll probably write two or three scripts at a time. So I'm not stopping and starting. And they were great with that, you know. And so it really allowed me to get momentum, you know. And for them to see, oh, I see this plays out, you know. I, I see you start the story here and it plays over this way. The Stavros story, for example. Um, and um, uh, and they were great on that level. And then when it come, came time to go into production... Mm-hmm. You know, then then they got very involved in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, and Graham Yost told me, he said, the good news is they don't have that many shows, and the bad news is they don't have that many shows, you know. And part of it was because they knew me as a writer, but they didn't know me as a filmmaker, and they had to be trained. So And so that's why I went the extra mile with the, the score, and, you know, there was there were two scenes that we couldn't shoot in our pilot period because... Uh, of the cold. It was literally too cold to shoot. But 
um, I also didn't want to just slug in a card, scene 32 here, so we hired a guy to do a storyboard, an animatic, for those sequences. And so the story is being told, you know, the whole time. The more complete right. thing you can give them. Exactly, because. exactly, because they only see it for the first time once. Absolutely. Uh, and I, it's fascinating to me that you are scripting all of the episodes. Oh, yeah. Uh, did you script them all before production started? I got eight of them done. Wow. Yeah. How long did that take? Well, we wrapped the writer's room June 1st, and we were on location prepping in... September, I want to say. So, yeah, basically, I mean, I probably finished episode eight in October or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I want to get nuts and boltsy for a minute. I want to come back to that. How do you write? How many hours a day do you sit in an office? Do you listen to the score, which is great? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I'll write as much as I can. You know, it's it it depends. What was nice about that period of time, which at this moment doesn't feel like life will ever be that simple again, but maybe it will be. Um, You know, it was very odd because after the writers were gone and it was just me in a room, like, writing, um, you know, those were my days, was writing the show. And it was very odd to be sitting there going, okay, I'm making a TV show, because it's such a team sport, and I'd stripped away the team and it was just me, so it was very odd, and it wasn't until we started casting and and prepping again that, like, people came came around, you know. So, it's interesting that you would bring in the writer's room to break story, but not yeah. to write script. Uh, it, I, I don't know, it makes a lot of sense in many ways, although it's not the way to... It was just that I had the time, you know, it was the fact yeah. that they... I wrote the first episode in November, mm-hmm. um, they told me in January, you know, it was the confluence of the network was expanding to more than one channel, they needed content, and they were trying to get into this limited series thing, American Horror Story had done really well for them. So it's the right place, right time thing. And I think even from that first draft, they felt like I got it, you know. And so in January, they were saying, well, you know, March, we're going to announce this whole expansion. And, you know, we're going to wait and announce the series pickup then. But why don't you go ahead and put a writer's room together? So in February, I was putting the writers together. And so by April 1st, basically, we were able to get in a room. But I knew that we couldn't shoot until winter, right? You can't shoot until winter. Where the earliest would be like late November. So I knew that, you know, I would have like five or six months that I could that I could write in. And that's an amazing lead time for it. It was great. I mean, it was crazy. great. But it's also too much of a lead time to keep <laughs> writers on staff because of the because of the the way you have to pay them to amortize yeah. it over time. So, you know, um, so we did this one time only, you know deal. Yeah. Um, and who were these writers? How did you put the room together? Well, what I said to them is like, give me give me people that I know and I know can work together because we have to move fast. Yeah. So, um, Bob De Laurentiis, who had been my number two guy on both my other shows, uh, and then Steve Blackman, who I'd worked with on Bones. Uh, he most recently ran private practice for a couple of years. Um, and again, what was nice was that those aren't necessarily writers that one would go... You know, these are the darkly comic guys, but we all get pigeonholed, right? And I knew that 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 Steve Blackman was a you know a, a you know a, a foul mouthed <laughs> you know darkly comic guy. Just hadn't he, been able to do it, right? He'd just been working for a living, and 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 then these two comedy, uh, this comedy team, uh, Wolpert and Nadivi, mm-hmm. who I'd done some development with, taken a pitch out with, and I really liked. And uh, you know, it's it's about the chemistry of the group and. 
you know, the great thing about about Bob is is he's like he's the factor that br- can bring the disparate people together. You know what I mean? Like you've got you often when you're staffing, you'll meet two writers and you're like, well, he's great and she's great, but you can't have those people in the room unless you have Bob in there. And Bob can somehow there's an alchemy <laughs> there. Yeah, was well, yeah, and his his phone is always ringing. So that's really cool. Yeah. Um, were there, uh, as you made your way through, I mean, again, you're working off a pretty extensive outline. You know, obviously, where the story's going. Were there surprises for you or, or particular challenges? There really for you? weren't. I mean, it's the, the 115 page outline was what I wrote. Mm-hmm. And it was very detailed, and it was detailed almost to the shot level. I mean, wow. one of the things that the last five or ten years of television has shown us is that it is it is now a cinematic medium in a way that it never was before and there was something I mean Breaking Bad being the most direct you know ancestor you know you, you look at those scripts and there's you know those episodes where there's six eight pages with no dialogue where it's just the story being told with the camera and, you know, I wasn't just walking in the shoes of two of the best writers in town. You know, they're the you know, two of the best directors, and I had to make a Coen Brothers movie. You know what I mean? So there was a lot of it. Most of the, um, the big camera moves were scripted. You know, we do a sequence where we find Don Chump taped to a thing with, that we rotate the camera. Like, that was a scripted thing. We do this this uh, Fargo crime syndicate you know tracking shot mm-hmm. where we don't see what he's doing he's killing his way through the building that was in the outline with a diagram of like how the no camera way. would move yeah yeah really so cool. um, and, and again I mean, that, that's one of those things that feels so Coen Brothers to right. me, but I don't think we've ever seen in the Coen Brothers movie no and also makes so much sense for TV because well, it's it was, cheap to shoot it was funny because you know we, we were I guess we were when uh True Detective came out, you know, we were, I guess we were shooting the first couple of episodes, or maybe episode three, and they did that six-minute tracking shot, mm-hmm. you know, the drug bus gone yeah. bad, and the whole thing, and the running in and out of the buildings, and, and we, you know, ours was already in the works for, you know, for a few months, but what I liked about ours was that it was funny, you know. Absolutely. It had a sense it of humor totally to it. Like you know, yeah. Um, that didn't even occur to me. Though. Yeah. That same six yeah, but it was like that whole thing. There was so much, you yeah. know, strum and, you know, it was like it was so... Twitter exploded about Yeah, it. <laughs> but but it was also, I don't know, it was very macho in a way that, that I wasn't interested in being, you know, so... Well, and I mean, that's an interesting thing, too, that this show... That's in line with this show. I mean, yeah. there is a sense of humor, but it's not a very masculine show. It's not a very feminine show. Right. I mean, it, it inhabits a lot of different attitudes and yeah. perspectives, which well, you don't get yeah. outside of FX, really. Well, I've, you know, if you look at everything I done, I do is is an ensemble show yeah. from the unusuals to my generation. You know, part of that is just I really like writing characters and I really like moving pieces, and and especially here. You know, the storytelling is about putting all these pieces in motion and then how they come together, you know, um, which is really exciting. But it also means that you tend to weed out those actors who want to, you know, play a guy named Castle in a show called Castle or, you know what I mean? Like, 
yeah. you know, and and that was a great thing about you know getting Jeremy Renner and in, in the Unusuals, and you know, he did, he just wanted to play a good role. He didn't care. So you tend to have a much better on set yeah. experience because everyone's there to make the movie. They're not there for their their own glory. Yeah. There's in, something in a way. to ensemble players. Yeah, I think they so. They know how to share. They know but how to play together. It, and it also does. It makes a more modular show where when you're in the editing room, sometimes you go, oh well, you know, we can move these scenes around or these pieces around or maybe even cut some of this storyline back I felt like I needed it on the page but I don't now mm-hmm. you know it just makes it more gives you more control in the end over over till the end you know? yeah that makes sense uh, let's talk about writing characters for a minute I mean I'm thinking of the unusuals yeah uh, as well as Fargo and, and my generation too I mean these are characters that pop characters uh, as they say yeah. that uh, really leap off the page and feel like things that actors would love to play yeah what's your approach to characters I know our listeners are looking for the right. secret recipe but how do you how do you approach like, well I don't think about you? actors um, until the casting process um, and really it's about um, you know I, I started as a novelist and my approach to novels was always started with a question you know which was not a character question it was more you know, I wrote a book called A Conspiracy of Tall Men, which was about a con- professor of conspiracy theories whose wife was killed in a plane crash. And But it came, you know, that came out of a moment in, in American history that I was living through that felt like we have this cycle of paranoia in this country and what is that about? So that started with that question of, like, what are Americans so afraid of? And then the question became, well, what's the best way to tell that story and who are the characters to do it? And then at a certain point, the theme has to take a back seat to the, to the characters. But for me, you know, Fargo, for instance, started with um, just this image of two men in the emergency room, and one was a very civilized man and the other was a very uncivilized man, and, and who were those guys and what was that journey? And the great thing about the, the, the fake true crime is that you're, you start the story before the crime has been committed. Mm-hmm. So you start with Lester on the morning of his worst day, and then you take him all the way through until the point where that transgression occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, the audience is invested in him and that story the way that you were in Macy and Buscemi. And, and, and then once the crime is committed, or the, in my case, the idea of the crime was committed, you introduce the cops because that's when the cops come into the story, right? And then... You know, it's. I sold the show to FX by saying it's the best of America versus the worst of America. Hmm. You know, yes, we have problems, but look who's solving them. Um, Well, I mean, but you say that, and we get this great character like Molly and Gus, these very earnest uh, good guys. But you also get the you know Odenkirk's character who. Yeah, and Bob's character. I mean, he really grew. You know, we cast him. I guess I'd written three. Because we were we were cast, started casting early, you know, before we got up there, obviously. Um, and once he was cast, it really sort of did change the the gravitas of the character really? in a way. You know, I mean, he, you know, he was more of a comic foil in the beginning. But then you'll see. I mean, are you going to go to the screening tomorrow night? Yeah, at nine. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then by the end, I mean, he really is. I mean, his journey really, in some ways, ends up mirroring um, Tommy Lee Jones. It's like you know, you have to, you have to 
decide to be part of this world, you know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. he just wants to live in a world, a simpler world, you know, with simpler motivations and the idea of a really insidious evil. It's, he doesn't want to live in that world, you know. Um, but, you know, with the unusuals, my my pitch was the char- the cases solve the characters and not the other way around. So if you have a guy, a detective played by Harold Perrineau, who's convinced he's going to die at the age of 42 because all the men in his family died at 42, what's the case that you give him that's going to play into that? You know, versus the nor- sort of normal procedural engine, which is like, okay, it's a murder, and then... You know, maybe it plays into the issues that the characters are going through in the moment, but but I don't know. I I like the idea of being more inventive. Like we did an episode of The Unusuals that was where Amber's character, you know, her boyfriend came to her and said, you know, he's a lawyer. He's like, I have this client. This client, his son got arrested. Can you get him out? So she went to talk to the arresting officer, and he's like, oh, you know, I tweaked my back arresting him, and my boss won't give me the day off to go to the doctor, and she went to Jeremy, and she's like, what is, what, what's going on? He's like, well, it's, it's the economy of favors that exists in the, in the NYPD, and, and, um, and the whole episode was about that, you know, that concept that may or may not actually exist, but is really fun to play with, Absolutely. you know. That's it, you know, the cases solve the characters is kind of a, a great pitch. Right. But in the room but it how do you execute really it? really tough to, to come up with. Well again it was an ensemble, so you know, you could you know, Amber and Jeremy have a case and, and um and you know Adam Goldberg and Harold have a case and then Josh Close and, and um you know they there's a case there as well and then there was an overarching right. you know So you don't have to spend too thing. much time with anyone but Well it's you know it's and it's how they play off of each other and and you know how do you avoid the sort of angry lieutenant cliches and there were a lot of things but I really liked the idea that you know that that behind every door was an inter- something interesting you know what I mean and um, I see you know Brooklyn Nine-Nine doing a, a similar kind of deal which is like you know they'll be knocking on doors and they'll open a door and it'll be you know whatever Fred Armisen or something right. and, and um, um, but uh, I don't know I mean I really feel like and and my generation was sort of the most character. I mean, it was all character. I yeah. you know, and it was, was pro- no probably the last time I'll ever anyone will ever get to do that <laughs> character show. But really, to go down to the point where if you're making a fake documentary about people's lives, and you can create the home video of their birth, and you can create <laughs> snapshots of their sixth birthday party, and you can create this sort of montage of their lives, you know, suddenly you're not watching a story. You're watching people's lives, mm-hmm. and and. I always felt, you know, when you watch a documentary like the Seven Up series or, or anything, the minute you think some, that something's real, small things become so much more dramatic. You know, is he going to get the job? Is you know, it's like small vers- becomes big. Well, yeah, versus the sort of scandal soap opera model where it's like, you know, Telemundo. Oh my God, he's you know, like I said before, he's sleeping with his mom, or you know, my twin sister is really my brother or you know whatever it is it's right. this the big plot yeah instead it's like actually characters. let's just go down to people's lives because when you're living your life it's like really dramatic absolutely yeah the things that are important to us maybe not to someone else but they take on importance to right the people who are part of our lives absolutely. yeah um let me ask you very quickly then uh we talked a little bit about you know how fargo is a show that you're getting what you like out of it. Right. You know, you're, it's pushing the right buttons for you. And I don't know your novels, but although I remember reading reviews of Conspiracy and Yeah, yeah. Um, 
is it is what is the subject matter that jumps out at you, or is it or is it ultimately about characters? Or it just depends. I mean, I felt I feel like you know my my contribution in this business, you know, film and TV was being able to take a genre and reinvent it as a character piece, um, which is which is. You know, it's an inside-out way of writing versus an outside-in way of writing, and and it really is about. Um, but it's also about having a you know sort of broader palette. I mean, to work, you know, the the leeway that I got from FX, you know, and the fact that that what they loved the most were the most risks that I took, you know, to have a ten-minute parable sequence in the middle of an episode, you know, which was. <laughs> which was really fun, fun to make and kind of crazy to fit into our production schedule, but but you know it, it was basically it's a parable and it's it's a story that has thematic meaning that plays into the show, but is not necessarily immediately relevant or under, or understandable in the context of it. You know, they loved elements like that. They loved the time jump. They loved, um, you know, I really liked with this show creating a sense of um, disorientation. With the audience, you know, it's that moment in episode eight when you know Gus and Molly are in, are you know going to sleep, and it's meant directly meant to mimic the end of the movie, so that you think this now it feels like the end of the movie, and it's like wait, I thought there were two more, and then we we drop down through the bedspread and end up on a stage with a magic act. You know, it's that moment where the audience goes, "Where am I? What is going on?" You know, where what I mean, like. And then, and then you bring in some element, or like going back at the beginning of an episode to see Lester buy the shotgun, and then trace it, then jump ahead to when he used the shot. You know, it's like giving you a fresh perspective on a moment or a thing that is not, if I had to tell you the story linearly, might not be the way I told it, but in, in deconstructing the structure of the show, suddenly it's more interesting, I think. Yeah, yeah. there's something really neat about yeah. creating tension out of the telling of the thing. Right. And not out necessarily out of what happens. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Uh, we'll end, as we always do, by asking you, what are you watching on television? What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends' rooms? Um, well, they popped a guy's head on Game of Thrones. That was crazy. <laughs> um, that show is so good at... Um, creating this tension that which it, as I think about it is based on, on the idea that, that there are two options for the way the story could go and both of them you want to see mm-hmm. right? you want to see the viper kill the mountain and put the Lannisters on their heels but you also want to see the version where he dies and and the and Tyrion has to go yeah. sentenced to death, right? So so it's that moment where you really don't know because they've both options are so clearly laid out, you know. Um, uh, I really like I'm liking Hannibal. Um, I think that it's this fever dream show that that you know is this sensory overload of you know sort of fetishistic. <laughs> You know, indulgence, but it's so beautiful and, you know, grotesque and and everything. Um, um, What else am I watching right now? You know, I'm I'm watching The the Americans. I'm watching... um, 
I, I mean, I haven't had time in the last year to watch very much. Yeah. Usually, but, it's about people catching up on yeah. watching things. Yeah, I think so. But but um, those are the shows that I'm sort of cool. making sure to watch. And uh, do you know what's next for you? Do you know? I mean, are you working on something now? Uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> working on a couple of things, which are not at the stage of talking sure. about them. But but both very two very exciting things, and and. Um, you know some film stuff as well you know it's like you know what I'll what I'll tell people is you always wonder you know when the moment comes am I gonna recognize it <laughs> and the and the answer is it is unmistakable for anything else you know it's like to and it's been a crazy humbling experience to you know to 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 be left to my own devices more than I've ever been and and, and create something that is so you know, universally well-received and builds from week to week and just um, has this, you know, sort of unmistakable this-is-the-moment moment, which I hope everyone gets at some point because it's it's really exciting. That's great. Yeah. Well, congratulations on it. And I can Thank assume you. there's no second season, right? Like, this is ten and done. Uh, I don't know what you can assume. Uh, um, but, I mean, you can assume that. This is what we've been told. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you know, I like the idea that um, that there's this sort of history of true crime in the Midwest and that and that the movie and this season the first season which you didn't think was connected turns out to be connected and um, but you know for me and for FX the, the really important thing which is also really nice because usually you know they want to turn into a machine like a money making machine but our first priority is can we make something as good or better and and um, and that's the question. So it's up to me if I can say to them, "Here's what I would want to do that would be as good or better." I think that you know, I think that we could do something. But I also think, you know, I, it's like I just wrapped editorial literally last week, and we're two weeks out from the finale, and you know, so I think it's good to take a, a beat and, and assess. So well, good. good. Well, congratulations. We can't wait for the finale, which I, is tonight. <laughs> We're putting this out. Oh, you are? The day of. Nice. Tonight. Um, Um, We didn't spoil anything. No, no, (laughs) no. I think I think I got it right. But you, you tell me. Thank you so much, Noah. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. To live in an old shack by the sea and breathe the sweet salt air. To live with the dawn and the dusk. Tides, the wind, and the rain. To surf and comb the beach and gather seashells. Hi, everybody. I'm Alan Seppenwall from HitFix.com. It's going to be my pleasure to moderate this discussion with uh, the cast and producers of Fargo. Let's start out. He plays Lou Salverson, and I'm very glad he is still alive at the end of this episode. Keith Carradine! <laughs> She is the hero of the piece as Molly Salverman, Alison Tolman. Yeah. 
and welcome. And we have our executive producers. First, Mr. Warren Littlefield. And the man who has toyed with our heartstrings and everything else in doing this impossible thing, writer Noah Hawley. So I get the sense that you guys like this. All right, um, let's start off with the, the survival of Lou. This is the second time I've seen this episode, and even though it was the second time, I was still not entirely convinced he was going to make it out of that diner alive. He's, 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 he still may not. I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it was an exciting moment in television history. Uh, Keith, what was the atmosphere on the set like when you were doing that scene with Billy Bob? Uh, I've been waiting a long time for a chance to work with him. So, and uh, when, I, when I read what Noah had written, uh, I got very excited about the prospect of... of you know, standing opposite Billy Bob and, uh, and playing that scene. It was, we had a good time. <laughs> it, it went too fast, though, didn't it? That it was, was quick, yeah. yeah, it was quick. Uh, you know, but that's television. You have to work fast, but uh, uh, it was a treat. I mean, uh, he, he's just an extraordinary talent, and uh, uh, it, it was a great day, and uh, uh, there were a lot of stories exchanged and jokes told, but uh, in between, we got to stand there and, and have those exchanges uh, in front of a camera, and uh, for me, that's it's as good as it gets. Um, now, I was glad to hear that you guys had the same reaction that I did to Lester and Linda with the park at the end. That's, that's pretty despicable. How did you come up with that, Noah? On the scale of things. There were a lot of things that, that we did that were pretty despicable. He put a gun in a kid's backpack. And, sure. And, uh, but that's pretty much the worst. He's not a nice man. Uh... It just, it seems there's a certain, obviously, gamesmanship that's going on here, and, and I think we realize that the Lester's survival instinct is stronger than just about any other part of him, and, uh, you know, the, in creating the, the sort of orange coat, the iconic orange coat, it suddenly became uh, apparent that we could use that to our to our advantage, and those moments, you know, where he... First he asks her, which is bad, and then he gives her the coat, which is worse, and then he tells her to put the hood up, which is like, yeah. yeah. Just a complete pile on. Exactly. So, Now, Allison, a lot of what you get to do that's so great on the show is you know, not through dialogue. It's just sort of how Molly is, is showing emotion, and here she has... Finally, someone has listened to her. Someone wants to hear her story. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about playing both in the diner and then at the police station when, when she's getting the praise from Pepper and Budge. Yeah, the, the scene in the diner where they, they, uh, they, she finally kind of gets some recognition for her work was really nice. And it, 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 they were both really excited about it. Jordan and Keegan were like, we're so excited about this scene. Someone finally pays attention to you. <laughs> like they were personally happy for me. They were like, congratulations. <laughs> I was like, cool. Um, but yeah, no, that was that was a lot of fun, and it was really um, that was a fun scene to play to get to see her have a break. And then the scene with, with Bob and Keegan and Jordan and I was just a, a big ball of silly fun. But we had a we had a good time doing it. 
No, no, in writing the arc of the series, there have been moments when Molly's been banging her head against a wall, and then she briefly convinced Bill, and then, you know, the Chaz frame comes in. And you, you heard the audience response when, when these guys believed it. Talk about trying to balance the, that out so that she gets to make progress, but not too much before the end of things. Yeah, I think it's the, the validation. You know, the thing with trying to make a Coen Brothers movie is, you know, there's no melodrama in, in, in any of their work. And so it's like, how do you create these real dramatic moments without, and then underplay them? Um, and, you know, it's my greatest goal to create something that is unpredictable, but in the end feels inevitable. So... You know, this idea that Molly almost had Lester, it's just she was sidelined and he, he one-upped her, he beat her. And then she just had to wait for her next opportunity and she just was, she just didn't give up and eventually it paid off. I mean, you know, hopefully it is, you know, it feels like a small moment, but it has such big implications. Now, one of the things that's been interesting about the show, we, we've got one pair of them up here, is this is a show with great father-daughter relationships. Lou and Molly, uh, Gus and Greta. Uh, how, how did that come to be a part of the piece? Well, the, there is. It's that parallel that, that, we, that, that, that we really liked, which is, you know, the father-daughter. And then when she sees Gus and he says, I let the guy go, and she's like, why would you let the guy go? And then she meets the daughter. She gets it immediately because she's in that position to get it immediately. And, and instantly she has empathy for him in a way that someone else might not have. So... I like that dynamic. I like the the parallels of it and and the idea, you know, in some ways, you know, and it was really one of my favorite parts of No Country for Old Men, you know, and Tommy Lee Jones at the end goes to see his old, you know, mentor who's in a wheelchair and and you realize that this, you know, he starts off saying, you know, his dad was a cop and his dad's dad was, a, you know, there's that sort of tradition you know, in, in the region. I, I like that idea that, that she's following in his footsteps and then she marries. You know, it's like it's handing it down. Now, and Keith, you talked before about sort of how quickly everything goes by. The two of you had to build this really authentic father-daughter relationship in, in not a lot of time. What was it like when, when the two of you got to know each other early on? Uh, with Allison, it was uh, so easy. I mean, uh, she just... Uh, I give her all the credit. I, do. I will take it all. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, we, we, were, we were actually, we were a really lucky group all together because we really enjoyed each other's company and we spent quite a bit of time together off set. So there were, it, was, it was unusual to do a scene with someone who you hadn't already had at least three meals with and spent some time with. So I think that was helpful. And also, because this is my first project, I think that I, ha- I was in a, a unique position to sort of have an actual, like, paternal relationship with Keith. <laughs> he could kind of, like, talk me through the, the business of the business, which he did, and I think helped. Now, there was an immediate rapport with, uh, that I felt with Allison, but, but uh, as much as I would like to say that I sort of felt like looking after her and taking care of her, since this was her first big deal, she didn't need my help at all. So... <laughs> Well, that, that right. brings which, me, which kind of reflects the father-daughter relationship in that day one, yeah. day one, the first day of shooting these 10 hours, that was it. You too. We were at Lou's Cafe. That's right. And, um, and you would have thought, no and I certainly did, that you guys had been working together for a few seasons. And here it was day one. Well, I mean, that, that leads me to my next question, which is, and I'll try to ask this as politely as I can, Allison, where on earth did you come from and spring out to be this good? 
we, we, we call it theater. It's a, it's a strange world with no cameras. Um, no, you know, I mean, I, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I was, I was, I always wanted to be an actress, and I um, always wanted to be part of the, the circus, and I, my interests have sort of evolved um, over the years. I've been doing this for 10 years now, and, um, you know, I was just kind of plugging along like you do, and, um, you know, lightning, lightning struck, and Noah called me, and then my life changed. And here I am with you fine people. Yeah. Well, no and Warren, I mean, were you looking for an unknown for this part, or did, how did this come about that you found her? Well, um, honestly, there were, there were three pretty well-known actresses that made it to the final round, and, um, and there was Allison, and... Um, <laughs> and, and Allison, Allison had uh, you know a manager in Chicago, and and everybody else was represented by UTA. Um, but when Rachel Tenor, uh, our casting director, and the Coens did recommend that Noah and I meet with Rachel, and we went, yeah, let's let's work with you. Um, she said, gee, there's this tape that came in, and I want you to see it. And we'd seen 30 different actresses uh, read the role of Molly, and there was no one that we felt was Molly. And then we looked at Allison's tape, and we were like, okay, this is really wonderful. Who's she? <laughs> um, and, and then there was a, a final uh, a read-off of those three women who were represented by UTA. By the way, where are you represented now? UTA. Yeah! And uh, in New York, on that fateful weekend, um, ultimately, Allison matched up and did the scenes, and, and it was really pretty clear. Now, Warren, you were running NBC when, the first time that someone tried to turn Fargo into a TV show, and that didn't quite work out. It, just, it seems insane to me that anyone would be able to take this movie and make a show this good out of it. Uh, how, how on earth did this happen? Well, thank goodness for Noah. Um, but uh, it was 97, and um, Bruce Paltrow uh, came in uh, with a writer, and they pitched, let's do Fargo. And it was a pretty straight adaptation of the Coen Brothers' masterpiece. And I said yes. Um, and we developed the script, and um, at the end of the day, the script was good. But it wasn't Fargo what the Coen brothers had created, and so I passed. Um, although they gave me a little snow globe, and uh, that snow globe had uh, Marge investigating the flipped over car, and there was blood in the snow, and, and I loved that snow globe, and I always kept it nearby. Um, and about four years ago, uh, looking at that snow globe, I went, wow, it's time. Uh, but Noah and I were under contract to ABC, uh, at ABC Studios, and um, despite the fact that we knocked on MGM's door, um, it really couldn't work out. Well, not too long after that, um, Eric Schreier from FX was meeting with MGM, looking at their catalog, and said, Fargo. Well, it took them forever to make a deal, um, and no writer was attached. And once they started to get together, I was like, wait a second, Noah and I want to do this, you have to hear from us. 
and that was it. You know, Noah uh, was given the opportunity. Um, I think the words that came out of FX were, we're not sure there has to be Marge to do Fargo. And that liberated him completely. And, um, and I, I think that was uh, what he created and where he went gave us the freedom to respect the origins and do something that was original. And, and the, nothing was more important than that. Well, no, I'm curious. I mean, the, the Coens have such a distinct voice, and you've talked a lot. You know, you're making a Coen Brothers movie for TV. How do you capture that voice without it just seeming like, you know, a bad cover band version of the Coens? Uh, I guess the simple answer is I don't know how to explain it or to, even if I un- understand it necessarily. It's, you know, there are certain things about the way that movie is put together and their movies in general that I thought a lot about. You know, there's something in the original, you know, Jerry Lundegaard never finishes a sentence. I don't think, you know, there's this inability to communicate that that feels regional, you know, because if you make a declarative sentence, you risk offending someone. So you never, you always want to sort of sidle up on what you're trying to say. So whereas as a writer, you're always looking to find the one perfect word, you know, here it was about why use one word when ten words will do. And then it just became about, you know, I went in and part of the first conversation with FX, I said, you know, we have to figure out what is our Mike Yanagita. You know, Mike Yanagita being the guy from the movie who calls Marge from high school and he says, um, you know, she meets him in in, in the Twin Cities and he tells her the story about the girl from high school and they married and she died of leukemia and he's just so lonely and then... Her friend calls her later and she finds out that he made the whole thing up and there's a restraining order. And you're like, why is this in the movie? It has nothing to do with anything until you realize that at the beginning of the movie it says this is a true story. So then you think, well, they they put it in the movie because it happened. I mean, that's the only reason you would put it in is it's like just a weird detail that's true. So that was that gave me the license to say to FX when they would say, and they didn't say very often, you know, like, why is this in the movie? And you're like, exactly, why is it in the movie, you know? So there was a lot of creative leeway that I would not have normally gotten. I'm curious where Malvo came from, the, this sort of, this agent of chaos who does things just because he enjoys winding people up and listening to the tapes afterwards. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, that I wanted, you know, there, obviously there's this sort of wilderness theme, you know, that plays in. The Coens have described the region as Siberia with family restaurants, and, <laughs> and I really like that idea that, you know, you can have the meatballs at the buffet and then freeze to death in the parking lot. It felt like a really... <laughs> Like, it's a weird thing. Like, people settled there. And, you know, we shot in Calgary where the coldest it got was negative 40. And, like, people live there. Like, it doesn't make any sense to oh, your house. But, you know, and they're very, like, polite and they don't seem to notice. You know, it's a very odd thing. So I like the idea that Malva would come into town and he, you know, the first image that I had was of two men in the emergency room and one is a very civilized man. Lester and the other is a very uncivilized man, and the question became, who was that? And obviously the Coens between, you know, Peter Stormar and, and, and Anton Chigurh and, the, you know, the villains, it's a very high bar. But, you know, what occurred to me is, is that, you know, Malvo's, the, there's a lot of physical violence that, that he perpetrates over the course of the 
series, but what's almost worse in the region is the violence to the social contract that he perpetrates. This idea that, you know, he's gonna, it's just as important to him to get a kid to piss in his boss's gas tank as it is to get a million dollars in a blackmail. Like, that idea that, that he is motivated by more than money and, and that he really is a sort of anarchic figure and also in a strange way that he represents us as well because he comes into this region you know and he's sitting in the emergency room and Lester's telling him the story about the guy who had a thing with his wife and then he didn't want to say anything because he didn't want to embarrass him and Malvo like us is saying he slept with your wife and you don't want to embarrass him like it doesn't make any sense so he was able to, to, to show a spotlight on that as well Alan, there's one thing I would say. When Noah first started conceptualizing this, and it's so critical uh, that writers ultimately can reduce what they're doing to a very clear thematic. And what Noah went into FX, I looked at them and said, this is about the best of who we are up against the worst of who we are. And I think when you say, where does Malvo come from? Well, that's where Noah went, the worst of who we are. I believe we're going to take some questions from the audience. There should be volunteers in the aisle with microphones. So if you want to ask something, raise your hands. All right, we've got um, people out there. Just kidding, they're not here yet. Oh, okay. Well, while, well, while we wait for the microphones, Allison and Keith, <laughs> talk a little bit about working in Calgary and the cold. That was fun, wasn't it? Well, it, it, it's, it's certainly, it's, uh, I've said this before, it's, it, it's, it's a character in the piece. I mean, the cold is actually... It has so much to do with how people are, and, and you know, I mean, what what Noah was talking about, the, you know, the idea that you could have a meatball and then freeze in the parking lot—that's kind of—it's actually true. Yeah, uh, it, it does get that cold, and uh, it infused everything we did. I, I felt like you know, you walk out into that into that air. I mean, one of the first uh, was the second or third day that we worked together. We shot that scene. This the final uh, scene of the pilot out by yeah, the lake. Yeah, the final scene of the pilot when we're out going to do some ice fishing, and we had to shoot in like five minute increments we'd get we'd get a five minute standing out there and doing a take and then we'd have to jump back in the car to try and unfreeze our faces yeah. that was 25 below zero and with a wind chill and we were out on a frozen lake so yeah that happens yeah <laughs> but aside from that Calgary is a beautiful city <laughs> Excellent restaurants. Great restaurants. <laughs> well, yeah, they actually they actually have designed the place to deal with the cold. In fact, you, you know, yeah. from the hotel, you could go entirely downtown and never leave the building. I mean, they had these series of uh, like a, uh, like uh, bridges, covered bridges and things, yeah. but with businessmen. Yeah. It's an interesting place. That's awesome. And, and the way the series is structured, you would have different guest stars coming in at different stages. So Key and Peele come in towards the end as, as each new person would arrive, like. As veterans, would you have to warn them about or help them adjust to what was going on with the weather? You would, yeah. We didn't tell them the truth. No. <laughs> we, just, we said it's great up here. You just come on up. No, but you did have to... I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't funny. You did have to dress people safely. And, and you know, I mean, Adam Goldberg and, and Russell Harvard, I mean, they had this um, midnight cowboy dynamic, you know, with the fringe and the Razzo Rizzo. And, but, you know, when we took them out on Frozen Lake, it's not warm enough so you know we put Adam in a fur coat 
and yeah. beaver shoes. Something. No, all imitation, really. But but uh, he was warm. Let's put it that way. Now, when when you did the shootout in the in the whiteout, was that actually outdoors or was that on a stage? It's it no, that was all. Yeah, that was outdoors, and and uh, it was cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't actively snowing for most of it, and no. so we had a lot of the big wind machines and and all of that. And then there's you know a healthy amount of uh, post. Uh, effects in there as well um, so that's you know I don't recommend doing a blizzard episode a, you can't shoot in an actual blizzard because you can't work and B it's just a, a lot of work but it was fun I mean it came out good I thought well, I mean, Al's, for Al's all 10 episodes 90% of what you see on screen is is the weather we were in um, yeah. we were lucky enough where it was um, the coldest it's been in Calgary and the most snow in 20 years Nice. Yeah. We were so lucky, weren't we? Lucky. <laughs> lucky. Well, I mean, Allison, you have to actually act while they're blowing artificial snow at you in, in that whole shootout scene. <laughs> Luckily, I had to act cold, so that helped. Um, yeah, you know, the hardest part about it is that, it, it, that, that the artificial snow doesn't melt when it hits things like your eyeball or your lips or whatever so there's just take after take where I'm like what's this what's this over here you know like just and then your eyes and it's so that was that was the worst part of it uh more than the cold I think was the inhaling inhaling starch the asbestos that we blew out (laughs) now Noah you mentioned before the the two hitmen and the the weather costume like the midnight cowboy guys but they also have this really unique dynamic of the the bickering couple where just one is deaf and they're communicating via ASL that's fairly novel yeah, but, you know, when it occurred to me, it felt like it fit into the, that Cohen world, you know, without being too gimmicky, like quirky for quirky's sake. And then, you know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm a, an Austin resident, and I live, you know, very close to the school for the deaf here. And so you just see walking around a lot of sign language going on, and it's such a visual and beautiful thing to see. And it also, you realize, is so private, like if you don't, speak sign language, it's a completely private form of communication. And I like that idea that they came in and they could understand each other, but no one else could understand them. And, and then, you know, there's a scene where Russell is, uh, Mr. Wrench is, you know, he starts signing aggressively at Lester, which felt, feels very threatening, you know, because obviously he's saying something and, and Lester feels like if he could just understand what he's saying, maybe he could talk his way out of this, but he can't. You've got the deaf guy as the one doing the interrogations. Exactly. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about you've got ten hours to fill, so you have all of these characters, some of whom have these briefer arcs. So Oliver Platt came in, went out. Key and Peele have come in now, sort of people have come and gone. You know, while you're still maintaining this through line of Lester and Lorne and Molly and Gus. Right. Yeah, I mean, I like large ensemble shows, and I like a lot of moving pieces, and the fun is how you're going to get the pieces, bring them together at the end. Obviously, you know, you meet Lester and Malvo in the first episode, and you probably think, you know, all ten episodes are going to be about Lester and Malvo in the same room, and then they're never in the same room again until episode nine. You know, when I described this season to FX, I said, you know, it's a circle, really. He... He impacts on Lester's life, and then he comes back around, but he doesn't realize how much Lester has changed since he left, you know. And that, that was really interesting to me, but it also meant we had to give Malvo some place to go and a storyline that, that happened there. And I like the idea that, you know, at a certain point, 
you know, every action has a consequence, which is a very Cohen theme, and, you know, even Malvo kills Sam Hess, never thinks twice about it, and then he's driving down the street one day, and these two guys rear-end him, and they come out with automatic weapons. I mean, even Malvo, the actions have consequences, and, and I like that idea that, you know, we would, we'd see wrenching numbers all the way through the end of episode five and know they were coming, and then we wouldn't see them again until the actual ambush so hopefully you forgot about them, you know, and you're watching, and oh, there's Don Chump, and oh, that didn't go end well for him, and, and, you know, all the elements in that first half hour, and then suddenly here are these guys, and, and, you know, there's a certain whiplash to try to catch up with it. And hopefully that makes something energetic and, and, and exciting, you know, versus when every move is telegraphed, you know, an episode or two ahead. Now, uh, last week's episode had the big time jump, which sort of caught everyone off guard. Um, and Lou, a year later, looks more or less the same. Molly is very pregnant. Allison, you now have to act with, with an empathy belly of some kind. Yeah. It was, uh, no, that was fun, actually. The, the pregnancy belly was, was more comfortable than the gun belt that I wore when I was, <laughs> when I was uh, having to wear that. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was fun. Comfy. <laughs> yeah, and it was, you know... I. I really like the idea uh, that, you know, in a, in a, quote, true story, unquote, it's like these cases often go cold for a long time, and so that felt right to me. And then, you know, when I realized that, she, uh, you know, that she should be pregnant and they should be together, and then suddenly it is the movie in a way that, again, you hadn't expected, I really like that, that dynamic. Um, and then, you know, it's been kind of crazy to see the you know, the sort of Gus and Molly forever thing that springs up. It's like you know, put right? any sem- semblance of a love story into something, it becomes the, the, the story. So, you know, I like the idea that in 10 episodes we could tell this amazing arc for these characters, you know, very economically. So, um, Allison, what's it like working with Colin? Oh, he's a nightmare. <laughs> So glad he's not here. No, he's um, he's awesome. He's amazing. Um, we again, like we spent we spent a we spent fair amount, a fair amount of time together before we ever filmed a scene together. We were both on set for a while. Um, so then we sat down and filmed that first scene where we first meet in the in the police station in three four three, three um, at the end of a very very long like eleven page day. It was like our last scene to shoot. One a.m. It was 1 a.m. We sat down to shoot that scene, and uh, we finished, and we were both, like, kids. We were so excited. We were, I, we were, we were both, like, we were going to have so much fun. <laughs> like, we just really uh, in, enjoyed each other as people, I think, which is helpful when you have to, you know, fall in love with somebody on screen, so. Um, Warren, when uh, I was on a panel with Noah yesterday, I asked him this question, so I'm curious for your take on it. This has been a big success if there were to be a second season, how would that? How would you want to approach that? Uh, with the same standard that we uh, delivered, it, it seems that uh, audiences, critics, uh, that somehow we managed to climb this mountain and and give them a Fargo that uh, that holds up. And uh, this is anthological as a beginning, middle, and end, and so there's no cliffhanger. There's satisfaction. And um, somewhere out there, could there be another true crime in the frozen tundra of Fargo? Yeah, 
there could be, um, and uh, and that would be great. But uh, we're more focused on delivering right now for the audience and satisfying them. The feedback has been amazing, um, and uh, we get to we we hear it, and and hearing you in this audience is spectacular for us. Your laughter and your uh, and your and your gasp. Oh no, he didn't. <laughs> um. Keith, you've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, Allison, you know, this is an, an amazing start to a career for you. I mean, have you guys talked a little bit about what it must be like for her to start off this way? I mean, we've, we've chatted about it. Um, I don't know. I think that the thing I really took away from getting to know Keith is that, I mean, how long have you been doing this now? A spell. 42 years. A long time. <laughs> but, you know, we've talked about, it's still really about you know, doing the readings and getting the parts and um, doing the work and then looking at the next one that you can do <laughs> to, get, to get the next role, you know, and um, that was really interesting and really nice to be around straight away because it'd be easy to kind of get wrapped up, I think, in this process and to have this be your first project is, um, of course, a, a, an unbelievable dream come true, but also could very easily be something that you'd be like, and this will be how it is forever, uh, which I'm sure that it won't be. So it's nice to kind of get that feedback from, from Keith about, um, you know, really just the work and getting the work done and um, that it is a sustainable life um, and to kind of see how he navigates that was interesting. Yeah, I, I, whatever I've been able to share with Allison. Um, Yes, I've been doing this a long time. If I've learned anything, it's that you're never there. You're always on the journey. Uh, I, I've never felt as though I have arrived. I've always felt as though I, I've, made, or I've made it around the next corner, and now I have to make it to that corner. So there's a sense of that in, in what we do, and, and, and that's the beauty of it for me, is that you're always, you're always striving to be present. And, uh, and, and when you're given material like this, it makes it a lot easier. But uh, um, if, if I've been able to share anything with Allison, it's that, uh, you know, you're not going to wind up in resting on your Laurels Canyon in this, uh, in this business. All right, and, and finally, before we go, Noah, I'm curious if there's anything for these pe people who have now seen Episode 9, any, like, sentence you would care to tell them about Episode 10? Uh, hold on to your butts. <laughs> and that seems as good a note as any to end on the cast and creators of Fargo. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Now leaving Nerdist.com.